Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Tom Goldstein. Tom has argued in front of the Supreme Court over 40 times. He also teaches Supreme Court litigation at Harvard Law School, and he's the publisher and founder of SCOTUS Blog, which is a blog dedicated to covering the U.S. Supreme Court comprehensively. Tom, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you so much for having me, Arne. All right. Now, this is a data podcast, and I think a lot of our listeners might find it interesting and a bit weird um, that you need data to argue a case in front of the Supreme Court just like maybe like hedge funds need data for their best trades. Am I on the right track about that? Like, is that something that's important as you're thinking about arguing? I'd say it's a yes and no thing. We do use a lot of data to explain the Supreme Court. So at the end of the term, we have a big data aggregation project that talks about and addresses, you know, who voted with who and what circumstances, how often various courts are affirmed and reversed. And it does help to make something that's pretty complicated and foreign uh, simple and familiar. And so data is valuable there. You can also have circumstances where data is valuable in litigation in general, when you're trying to deal with big data sets, obviously. The thing about the Supreme Court is that data can, and I guess this is true everywhere, is that big data can help to clarify things and it can also mislead. So with the Supreme Court, on some level, each case is relatively unique. So it's a sample set of one. Now, as you try and extrapolate outwards from the particular facts and particular legal question in any given case into broader things. You can make bigger data sets, but your extrapolation is gonna introduce error because each case that you are saying, oh, this is a similar case to that one is actually gonna be dissimilar in some ways. So if I say to you, all right, I'm gonna do data analysis on the Supreme Court's race decisions or abortion decisions or religion decisions. Well, each one of those is different from another. And so if you just look at numbers, or you look predominantly in numbers, you can be led down the wrong path. The other thing is that if you know the Supreme Court well enough, like you know any decision maker, the data is telling you things that are, again, simplifications of things that you ought to be able just to understand as a field subject matter expert. You know, there are times when data can be useful as it relates to the Supreme Court, there are times that it can be misleading. There are handicappers, just like you handicap a football game or something like that, right? And you might handicap before the arguments, you might handicap after the arguments, but before the decision. And based on that, people may make certain bets or I assume or something like that. Right. So there are times when the Supreme Court is deciding things that have a lot of money at stake. The best example of what you're talking about is gambling on gambling. The Supreme Court had a decision a few years ago on whether states could authorize sports betting. And so there was a huge amount of investment and trading based on predictions about what the Supreme Court would do, because that opened up an entire multi-billion dollar industry, you know, tens of billion dollar industry. You can also have individual cases where particular parties have a ton at stake. So for example, we're going to talk about Google versus Oracle. Google had north of $10 billion at stake in that case. It's just that Google's market cap is so big that it doesn't really so much move it. But I had a case Qualcomm versus the FTC that moved that stock. And there are cases, for example, that are about entire industries. So there was a big fight over whether the federal government had to pay several billion dollars to various insurers under Obamacare. And so the markets can really be affected by particular cases and getting subject matter experts in there. Also, timing can matter. You know, the Supreme Court isn't really built to interact with the markets. And so it's technology, when it releases things, 
you can get uh, weird information economies and diseconomies where I've been hired, for example, to give somebody a three or four second edge in understanding what it is that the Supreme Court is doing. Oh, so it's not like the Fed that publishes to like everyone at the exact same time. You might get a few second lead on a Supreme Court decision or something. You can in one of two ways. One is now the Supreme Court has got better and better at releasing its paper copies and, and web copies at the same time. But for a long time, the Supreme Court didn't even have a website. And so it was all about the paper copies. The second is whoever gets something is still getting a piece of paper and then you have to understand it. You have to interpret it quickly. So how quickly can you interpret it? This happened not with respect to the markets, but nonetheless, with respect to information. When the first Obamacare case came down, Fox News and CNN reported that it had been struck down. There was a whole debacle that morning where some of the major news media reported the decision backwards because they were in such a rush that they only reported what was on the first page. Because it was a nuanced decision and they didn't even have the time to read the whole thing. They didn't take the time. They had the time, but they didn't take it. And it created this whole thing where President Obama, in this, in where he was at, they had CNN and Fox on television, kind of understandably, and those those both got it wrong. And so for a while in the White House, they thought they had lost when they had won. It was a whole. All right. Now you mentioned Google versus Oracle, uh, which I think is a super interesting case. It's a case that you argued and the Supreme Court ruled on last year. And for what I gather, it's it's a case of whether Google's use of like certain interfaces from Java, uh, which Oracle acquired as part of like acquisition of Sun. Can you give us like a little background? on the case and then like, like we can dive into why that case is important. Sure. So Google versus Oracle is at the bottom about interoperability between different pieces of software or software and hardware. So if two pieces of software are going to talk to each other, they're going to talk to each other through an interface or to a piece of hardware. There's got to be some... Like an API or something. Yes. Yeah. It's a, an API, an application programming interface is generally what we're talking about. And Java has thousands of APIs for when Java programmers, Java engineers are writing Java, like a lot of uh, modern programming languages has shortcuts. So you can just use one word to incorporate, you know, dozens or hundreds of lines. And so the thing is, is that there were, when Google was making Android, it wanted the Java engineer community to be able to write for Android. Java itself is public domain. Nobody has a copyright, everybody can use it. They also wanted the Java engineers to be able to use those shortcuts. In order for the Java engineers to be able to use those shortcuts, Google had to bring in the, a the APIs from Java and had to reuse the APIs because no other APIs would work. If you changed any of the APIs, then the shortcuts that the engineers were using wouldn't work. And so there was a big copyright fight. Uh, Oracle sued Google principally for patent violations. They lost those. They went for copyright. And they said that the APIs were copyrightable, copyrighted, reusing them was not fair use under copyright law. And I could see how this could have like implications throughout like the entire software world because everyone is borrowing different API or other types of uh, interfaces from other companies and stuff like that. You can even imagine like the hashtag and the at sign and all these other kind of things that we use all over the internet nowadays was developed somewhere at some point, and, but then everyone kind of liberally copied that. Yeah, it's a huge deal for interoperability. Also, it's a huge deal if you want to make new software to replace old software. If you want the user base of the old software to continue to be able to use their built up knowledge about, hey, this is how the program works and these are the codes that I use and everything like that. If you can't reuse the interfaces, then you're kind of stuck. The switching costs for the user base will be so high that it can be very hard to compete. 
So both with respect to creating new software that interacts with existing packages and also creating new and better stuff, uh, it was regarded by the industry as a humongous deal, especially when Oracle won. Oracle, Google beat Oracle at trial twice. Oracle beat Google in the Court of Appeals twice. The US government sided with Oracle saying that APIs are copyrightable and it wasn't fair use. And so it did threaten to upend, rightly or wrongly, a massive body of code and a massive body of practice in the software industry. And you represent Google in this particular case. Yeah, we only talk about cases I win, so yes. <laughs> what would have been the implications if Oracle had won in the Supreme Court? Do you think that it would have been more narrow or do you think they actually would have been more widespread? Well, we, our view is that the earth would simply stop turning. Uh, <laughs> now, assuming that was hyperbole, it had backwards looking and forwards looking implications. It was going to be a huge deal. And it wasn't just us talking. Because everyone would have been suing everybody, essentially. It's like, this has been going on for decades. Google didn't come up with this idea of reusing interfaces. Yeah. I mean, every single company I know of does this. Java itself reuses a bunch of interfaces from earlier programming languages. So, you know, everything, nothing is truly new. Everything builds on what comes before it. And so there was a real worry about massive, massive litigation uh, about existing software. And then everybody's like, well, what are we going to do going forward? You know, an interface is essentially a lock and key. And if anybody can claim I have a copyright on the lock, nobody else can go through this door. It really did threaten to lock up the existing user basis for legacy software indefinitely. You could make an argument it would really slow innovation going forward. Absolutely. We wanted people to be able to just continue to connect more and more things and build on more and more things. On the other hand, to give Oracle its due, copyright exists to encourage innovation. And a lot of effort had gone into building the APIs originally. And so there's a balance there. And you know that's the balance that the Supreme Court was trying to strike. Give us a sense of why you think the court came down on the side, besides for your brilliant arguments. That's all there is. <laughs> okay, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> I had relatively little to do with the thing. I always thought, I mean, I did get, I was hired to get the Supreme Court to take the case and then to win. And we, we did do both of those things. The Supreme Court had turned the case down one time before. I just had a, a sense uh, that the justices we're not interested in fundamentally upending an apple cart that was working really well. That the software industry, which was so solidly on our side, both big players like Microsoft, lots of small developers, the programming community, we had hundreds of software engineers, they all explained that this was a practice that was really very important to the orderly development of competitive software packages. And uh, that was basically you know, the core message. The second message was, that this really wasn't a case about Google because nobody's going to like lose a lot of sleep over Google getting hit. We were telling a story about the developers, the Java engineers who wanted to use the, the commands they knew, right? The commands that they know are not copyrighted, but Java required them to use those commands in combination with these APIs, with the interfaces. And it, in Java, they're called declarations. And if Oracle could copyright the declarations, it would really shut down the developers. And so we really made the heroes of the story, the, the developer community that wanted to make amazing computer software, amazing software for smartphones and the like. In the end, the Supreme Court did two things. The first is it looked at the question of whether APIs are subject to copyright. Can they be protected under copyright law in the first instance? And it refused to decide that question. 
And then it turned to the question of whether the reuse of the APIs here to create Android, to allow uh, Android developers to use Java was fair use and therefore privileged, assuming that the APIs could be copyrighted in the first instance, and it said yes. We still don't really know whether APIs could be copyrightable. I mean, maybe in some cases they can, in some cases they can't or something. That's exactly right. So the Court of Appeals ruled that they can, and there are copyright holders uh, who created APIs who are still relying on that ruling to say, we have a valid copyright. And that's just an open and undecided question. Now, in a lot of circumstances, the question doesn't matter because the use of the APIs will be fair use, but sometimes it will. So it mattered to the Supreme Court in the Google case that the APIs were being reused in a way that was you know, on a different platform. Java overwhelmingly was a server and desktop platform, whereas Android is obviously a smartphone, smart device uh, platform. And they were being reused uh, to create applications for an entirely different operating system environment. So if you instead reused interfaces to create just a straight competing product on the same platform, this came up, for example, a long time ago with spreadsheets. There, the original cases involved spreadsheets where there were APIs or interfaces so that you could use various macros for a spreadsheet. Gosh, there's a VisiCalc and then Lotus 1, 2, 3, yeah, exactly. Excel, right. and then Google That's Sheets. Exactly. Yeah. It involved Lotus. And Lotus versus Borland was the big case. With Lotus 1, 2, 3, if you had these interfaces for the macros and then you reuse them to create a competing spreadsheet program on the same platform, that kind of case is still around. We do know it's fair use if you're working in an entirely different environment and doing something different. When you are just trying to compete, it's an open question of whether it'll be fair use. And therefore, the copyrightability question is still important and hanging out there. If you use Google Sheets or use Excel, a lot of the same ways of creating formulas in Excel work on Google Sheets. There's a lot of similarities there. If you use one, you'd be very familiar with using the other. It has kind of both forward and backward capability. In some ways that's good for the user, but that you could say that's bad for Excel because it makes it easier for me to move my Excel to Google Sheets or or in this case, moving from Lotus to Borland or Lotus to Excel, et cetera, right? That's all correct. And so the question is, sometimes you can create a user experience creating your own interfaces and sometimes you can't. And if you if there's only one interface that will work, then you, this copyright issue comes up. Merely duplicating a user experience is rarely a copyright problem because copyright protects what you wrote as the author, as the software creator, not what the user is experiencing. That can, it can get very hazy and it can get tough to decide when you're talking about user, visual user interfaces, for example. Like a UI or, you know, this is the Mac versus Windows thing, et cetera. Right, and that, that can arise in two different contexts. One is copyright and the second is design patents. The visual... Uh, effect of something can sometimes be patented in, in limited circumstances. Apple has done that. And there, there have been fights that I've been involved in with Samsung and Apple, for example. You could have a design patent and, and not just a copyright on something or, okay. Yes. Ornamental features of items generally are handled as a matter of patent law rather than copyright. What's the argument of patenting like art, essentially? Yes. So that there is, you know, paintings can be copyrighted. Artistic things absolutely can be copyrighted. But what, what's the, but you just made your ornamental patent, like, which is to me, that seems like art. How do you patent art? You can have physical items and sometimes logical items 
in which they are purely ornamental and you want to protect their visual features. And so there's just, it's a very complicated overlap between copyright and patent law. Design patents are a, a tricky subject. For copyrights, they seem like nowadays they could be extended forever, whereas patents do have like maybe a much, much shorter shelf life, but maybe patents, you have stronger protections than copyrights. Is this the trade-off if you're deciding one versus the other? Or? Yeah, you got exactly right. Our view is that this sort of thing by Oracle is properly the subject of patent law to the extent you can get it. It's much harder to get a patent. The protection lasts less long, but it is more protection. Copyright, it lasts forever. It's super easy to get a copyright, but there are doctrines like fair use that can copyright bubble more easily. How do you think of these like business process patents? I've gotten many patents in my life. Many of them are just kind of business process patents. Some of them are maybe real invention patents. Uh, I've never actually tried to enforce the business process patents, but I imagine I'd have a tough time if I wanted to. Yeah. So the Supreme Court has gotten really tough on those. The doctrines related to business method patents basically say, you can't just be saying, I have a solution to a problem. Here's how I would solve it using a computer. And so the ability to get patents on computer software is very difficult. You have to be, you know, you have to have a very, very unique solution to a problem that happens to use a computer. Merely porting over a solution onto a computer won't do. And that's why most software-related business method patents are probably invalid. But yet the patent office, they continue to grant it. You would think it'd be hard to get a patent in the first place. Why the grant patent if it's not something that can be enforced? Because there's a little disalignment between the Supreme Court and the Patent Office. The Supreme Court has decided two or three of these cases, but not 10. And so it's a little bit unclear. And the Patent Office, I think, tends to be a little over generous because it doesn't want to be in the boat of like denying a patent that later is deemed to be valid. Also, the Supreme Court is pushing back against this practice by the Patent Office. And the Patent Office just tends to be very pro-patent. I guess it makes sense. That's how they make their money. That's true. But I just think they have in general, the sense of like, they really want to protect. They have the perspective of the, the patent laws are valuable and they really do encourage innovation and they want to see these inventions. And the Supreme Court really thinks that patents can get in the way of innovation. And they're very, very, very concerned about patent holdup, that there's a lot of patent extortion going on with very low value patents. Litigating patent cases is so expensive that it's very easy to force settlements and that sort of thing. Whether the Supreme Court will pivot on that a little bit is a little unclear because Justice Kennedy was the most kind of anti-patent justice, Justice Breyer as well, and he's probably going to retire this year. And so I don't know if we'll see some movement where conservatives on the Supreme Court are generally pro-property rights might tilt back in the direction of being more pro-patent. Interesting. Speaking of like Justice Kennedy and Supreme Court, the court has changed a lot over you know the last 25 years. And I, I don't know that much about the court, but it does seem like in the past, it was like, we're just going to argue to Justice Kennedy and wherever he goes, is going to decide the fate of my case. Whereas today it does seem like there are many more combinations, many more strange bedfellows being formed than in the past. Is that just someone like me seeing patterns that don't exist or is that actually a trend that is happening? Well, you know, frequently you talk about conventional wisdom that is, you know, not as sound. It's really a situation of what it depends. So if you had a case that was deeply ideological, if you had a race, abortion, gay rights, religion, free speech case, then yes, Justice Kennedy overwhelmingly was in the center of the court. Not always. On race, for example, he was pretty anti-affirmative action, but he was, in general, the court's ideological center. Now, a bunch of what the Supreme Court does isn't ideological. 
you know, Google versus Oracle, you wouldn't call ideological, and it's a big deal. Uh, you would say about a third of the court's docket. And that's why you only really see about 20 to 25% of the court's cases usually being decided five to four, and about 50 or 60% of those being decided on when Justice Kennedy was on the court, five, four grounds. Now, the reason we're going to have fewer 5-4 ideological cases now is that we don't have a 5-4 ideological breakdown anymore. We have a 6-3-1. So you may get a bunch of 6-3 cases, and it doesn't trigger the mind in the same way as the notion of it being 5-4 does, but it's no less ideologically divisive. It's just that by dint of politics, we now have a broader conservative majority than we've had in a century of the Supreme Court. In terms of whether we're getting more diverse lineups, it's a little early to tell. The court has just changed a lot. We have Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh. So we've had a series of recent appointments to the court, and it usually takes a few years for people to settle into their jobs and kind of get their perspective. We've had a number of surprising decisions from some of those justices and also the chief justice. It's shaking out, but you know, on a big abortion case, you're not going to expect one of the conservatives to pivot and suddenly be in favor of Roe versus Wade, a big religion case in favor of a separation of church and state, a big affirmative action case in favor of race-based preferences and that sort of thing. But there will be questions of degree. Well, I saw one recently where Thomas and Sotomayor were lined up and you know, maybe it was like Breyer and maybe Thomas on the other side. And there does seem like these strange bedfellows that are happening, or you think that's not happening that often? It's very rare. And it's, it's not much more rare than it was before. Again, small data sets can produce unfair extrapolations. And so, you, you know, that case could have arisen this term or five terms ago. It's still this case. It's very hard to suggest that there, the justices are themselves. A justice like Justice Thomas is not going anywhere ideologically, and neither is Sonia Sotomayor. So when you see them line up, you don't really tend to think, oh, it's because the court is changing. The big changes relate to changes in composition. And so the new justices, the loss of Justice Ginsburg and the like, justices being on the court longer, becoming more comfortable with who they are and, and their own views. It's a big change from going from the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court because it's a fundamentally different job. In the Court of Appeals, you're trying to apply Supreme Court precedent. In the Supreme Court, you're basically making law in the name of precedent. It's very rare that justice will show up fully formed in their views on those things. Speaking of how courts change during COVID, the, the court sessions were on video. Well, audio, not video. Oh, sorry, sorry, yeah. all, oh, sorry yeah. on audio, um, even more different. There was a lot of the process about how the questions were asked was different, et cetera. There was both like good things and maybe things that weren't so good about it. What did you learn from the audio piece of the Supreme Court arguments during COVID? And how do you think that may affect Supreme Court in the future? Well, for the justices, I think it was worse. It was very hard for them to have a coherent line of questioning because they had to ask him in order or something, right? Exactly or- right. It went in order of seniority and they were cut off after two and a half minutes. Then they just had to stop. And then their next colleague would want to talk about something else. So in Google versus Oracle, where we had both the copyrightability question and the fair use question, and then we had nine justices asking questions, it was just a wet mess. For me, it was interesting because I'm so used to, you know, you stand up in front of them. When I argued cases telephonically in front of the Supreme Court, I could have a 10-member team and three different chats going at the same time and real-time transcripts. And I did a lot with the technology. And you obviously can't do any of that when you're doing it live, right? When you're in person, right? When you're right there. And they are now in person again. They're still streaming the oral arguments, which is a big development. It used to be that you had to wait until the end of the week to hear the audio. You can only get a transcript same day. But now there's nearly real-time audio. I think they probably hated it. Interestingly, 
now that they're back in the courtroom, they have uh, preserved a touch of the things telephonically, and that is at the end of the half hour of oral argument, they will go in order of seniority again. Oh, oh so that's, that's a new development. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, they're experimenting with that to make sure that everybody gets in anything else they want to ask about. So oral arguments now last a little bit longer than they did in the past, which was also true during the telephonic period. How do you see like the science versus the art of Supreme Court advocacy? You know, Supreme Court advocacy, like a lot of specialized fields that are not sciences, is about wisdom, probably. There's a lot that goes into it. Like if I'm in the courtroom, a fair amount of what I'm doing accounts for the body language, the questions that are asked that aren't asked, the tone of voice, the level of interest, that sort of thing. Now, on the other hand, the Supreme Court oral advocacy is only a tiny piece of the puzzle. Most of the case is fully baked by the time you get to oral argument because there are all these briefs that we've written. That too, though, is wisdom. It's non-formulaic. It's persuasive writing. It's trying to break down and figure out where your five votes are, that sort of thing. It is, I think, more on the art side of things. We think of it more on the science things. It is intellectual, but it is ultimately a persuasive act, which is more an artistic thing. You've argued 40 cases in front of the Supreme Court. That seems like a lot. How many people have argued more than 20 cases that are still active today? It depends on if you include lawyers for the government, because the government's involved in three quarters of the cases. If you just say private lawyers, in 45, I've done the most of anybody who's just argued in private practice. I never worked for the government. It is very important to account for the governmental advocates, because that's where we have a real gender and race and ethnicity diversity problem in the practice of law. Most of the diverse practitioners come out of the government, because the government does a much better job hiring. If you go hire, go to a law firm and hire somebody, you're going to get almost inevitably hire the most senior person. Person, which is generally going to be a white guy, the governmental state and federal governments, their advocates and where those advocates go after they work for the government are very, very important. But it is a pretty tiny group of repeat players. I guess I started doing this in 98. So 23 years. So arguing twice a year for 23 years or so. It's the handful of people. But the interesting thing is nobody retires. It's the world's easiest job. So the people who were doing it when I started in 98 are still doing it. Maybe two of them have retired. So it, there's a bit of a bottleneck. That does seem like there's a bottleneck. Now, a couple of personal questions. You started SCOTUS blog with your wife, Amy. How you're both lawyers. You're both advocated in front of the Supreme Court multiple times. I've actually been to your house for dinner. And it, it doesn't seem like you guys, at least in person, disagree that much. How do these two high-powered lawyers cohabitate? in the same household. I basically do what she says. And that's that's all. I don't believe that. That's yeah. not true. Come on. No. <laughs> I mean, we've been together forever. We started, we went, we were freshmen together at UNC Chapel Hill in 1988. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. And, uh, graduated in 92. She got a full ride to graduate school at Georgetown's Foreign Service School, then went to law school. I went to law school and just started my own law firm. And then we just started working together. So we did teach at Stanford and Harvard. We started the blog. Amy has had the good sense to get out of the law game as such. She became the editor of the blog and is now the reporter for the blog. So I think is, you know, even closer to the court than me is, was down there today is down there every active day. And so really has her finger on the pulse of it does a lot more media related to court these days than I do in terms of disagreeing. The thing about both of us, I think, is that we take the court as it comes to us. A lot of people think about the Supreme Court as being good or bad in fairly ideological terms. I think we respect the people and recognize that there's no necessarily, we're both on the more liberal side of things, but it's not that we view that as like some norm that's enshrined in the constitution or otherwise in the law. And therefore we regard the more conservative justices as acting in bad faith. 
We don't. We just like they have a different take on things. It turns out the Constitution makes their view important and not ours. And that's actually relatively important if you want to be a good reporter or a good lawyer, is you have to take the institution as you come to it and have to, you know, work on the understanding that you can try and either explain them or persuade them in logical terms. Now, you're also a big, big fan of poker. How has that helped you be a better lawyer or how has being a great lawyer helped you be a better poker player? I wish that I was a better lawyer and a better poker player. <laughs> um, poker is, is less a part of my life now. For a while, it was a, a big part of it. I would say that poker is a, a good example of something where you just are never stopping learning. Like you can know the rules of something, like you can know a set of legal rules, but the number of iterations that you have to go through in order to get better and better at it is very high. Poker is something where data is taken on much greater significance than it has in the law. The law is catching up, uh, certainly with poker, because there are solvers for poker in the way that there aren't solvers. You can't really so much AI the law, you can AI poker. Texas Hold'em is a solved game on some level, a very sophisticatedly solved game, but a solved game. Do you think like computers would beat people generally in poker? Overwhelmingly. There are players that are better than the machines because they're able to adapt to the machines. Poker is ultimately a leveling game where you try and stay one step ahead in your thinking. There are a very small subset of one one hundredth of 1% of all poker players who are capable of out-leveling the machines. And it can get very complicated if you are playing seven-handed poker. But in Heads Up Texas Hold'em, almost any player in the world would be a very, what we say, significant dog. They would have almost no chance of beating the state-of-the-art in software. But there's also a human reading component that obviously doesn't intersect so much with uh, computing in live poker. And so that has been relevant to just understanding people, understanding body language and the like. A poker hand is a problem. You have to break the problem down. You have to understand what your strengths are what the other side's strengths are, and, you know, figure out where you're at. Beyond that, it also diverges enormously too. Do you teach your kid, do you play their kids or? I think in general, you'll either gravitate to poker or you won't. And in my book, just like starting kids out with things related to gambling is not good. Okay. Well, I've been playing poker with my kids, so maybe I should stop. Uh, <laughs> they've been taking a lot of candy off me. All right. Get them out earning. That's what I, I, I that's, that's your perspective. And I, I can't argue with it. Nobody can. All right. Last question. We ask all of our guests, what, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice? Yeah. So we did touch on this question of like, don't assume the Supreme Court's an ideological place and every case is going to turn on the politics because the great majority of cases don't do that. If you ask, all right, step a little bit away from the Supreme Court and think about law, politics, institutions, and the like, there's a conventional wisdom that our legal structures are really, really solid so that things can't truly go south. It would be impossible, for example, for the United States to turn autocratic. That conventional wisdom is surprisingly wrong. All of these institutions are staffed by individuals. We've, we're very lucky when it comes to the Supreme Court to have genuinely no BS a set of people with a very who are very principled and are concerned about the country and institutions and the like, they're not power hungry. But you can get in at the federal, state, and local level, we've seen over and over again, people that betray the principles of the offices they hold and the constitution they're supposed to uphold. And you can lose democracy in the United States. You absolutely can do it. People think like the ends justify the means. They're trying to do something good in the world. And by doing something maybe somewhat unconstitutional, it creates some sort of good and they're willing to take the shortcut to do it or something. That's a charitable take on it. Some people may be megalomaniacs. Oh, God, or they're just trying to get power. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, either one is is fair enough. The systemic and institutional constraints that we have, like checks and balances, is what we learn in schools, aren't themselves sufficient to maintain a democracy. That the people matter a ton, and that's just a broader lesson about things. And that is, everything ultimately is about people. The people you're around, who you hang out with, who you listen to, who you trust, who's in your family, who are your friends, who are your enemies. Right. It's not like blockchain AI is making all these decisions. It's an individual person even may make very different decisions with the same information on different days based on how they're feeling or something. Absolutely right. And that means that in the end, even though computing and machines and the blockchain and like are so much more important every day than they were the day before, our future is still very much in the hands of, of people. Cool. Well, this has been awesome, Tom. Where can people find you besides for SCOTUS blog on, on the interwebs? Yeah, I mean, the SCOTUS blog is kind of the place that, that we hang out. And uh, that's true. The blog has now a TikTok presence and significant Twitter presence and that sort of thing. Are you doing any dance videos or anything? Or Oh, you have no idea <laughs> uh, the, what's coming and uh, what the justices are going to be into. That's, that's really what we're, we're mapping out. Oh, awesome. Well, thanks again. This has been great. All right. Thanks so much, Ryan. I really appreciate you having me and congratulations on the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.